All right, good morning. Great to see you. Hope you're having a great day today. We're uh, uh, continuing our series. I know some of you are probably wondering about Pastor Kevin, how he's doing. And he's doing fine. He's, uh, he actually ran a 5K for Heartbeat yesterday, and he's uh, planning on being back next week to speak. And uh, this morning he's up at, uh, at Grace Point actually visiting their service. But uh, plan on being here next Sunday. You can keep praying for him, and, and, uh, but things are, things are looking good. And uh, we hope you'll be back, obviously, then next Sunday, Mother's Day, and then in two weeks, we hope those of you who are uh, impacted by that Tiffin meeting that you're here and a part of that, because we really want to share some of the vision for what's going to be going on there. So please be a part of that meeting two weeks from today. Last week, we did start our series on end times. We tried to lay a foundation for the rest of the series. But some of you may be wondering, you know, you know we, we talked about things, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. We're talking about things that are going to happen at some point in the future. I mean, what about today? What about why? What does this teaching have to do with my life right now? And let me just throw out two quick answers to that, okay? First of all, the truth of the end times is truth that drives us. It drives us to live our lives faithfully. It drives us to reach others. It puts a sense of urgency in everything we do. Time is going by, and we don't know how much longer we have, so it energizes us to get going. If you want to be a part of what God's doing in this world, it's time. And it's also truth that encourages us. How incredible is it for us to know and trust in the power and care of our God? If he can set up and take down kings, if it's all in his hands, then there's nothing to fear about the future, and there's nothing for us to fear right now. If you've trusted in Jesus, he's got you. We're sealed with God's spirit. He owns us. He guards us. It's all encouraging for believers that future, it's, it's the best is yet to come. And like we were saying last week, as we looked back to the 6th century BC, to a, that dream that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had, and we saw Daniel's prophecy concerning that dream that was fulfilled hundreds of years later. It gives us confidence in predictive prophecy when we look at Scripture. So we're using that evidence as a foundation for the reliability of the Bible as we look ahead to what Scripture is telling us to come. Today we're going to go from Nebuchadnezzar's dream to a series of visions that Daniel has himself. And I just want to mention, you know, visions were never the norm as far as how God communicates. They were unusual even in biblical times. We're certainly not looking for them now. Why? Because we believe the revelation of God is complete in his word. So we're not looking for revelation, but Daniel has a series of dream of visions that help us transition from the past to the future. So what we're going to try to do today is to look at some of what Daniel sees, give an overview of what's ahead, and then in coming weeks we'll be laying out some detail about it. But we start today in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision of four beasts, four beasts that parallel the four parts of the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. If you remember that statue, there, it was all about four empires, right? The Babylonians, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. The, the scene now with Daniel and his vision is, in this, is at the Great Sea, probably talking about the Mediterranean. And from that sea came four great beasts, these four successive empires, the, those same four showing up in Daniel's vision is a strange bunch of creatures. A winged lion with a human mind and heart, 
I mean, the lion was characteristic of Babylon. We know that, especially during Nebuchadnezzar's time when the Ishtar Gate and the entrance to the city was decorated with a long line of lions. We've got a picture, I think, of, of what those looked like. That's one. There was hundreds of these on the gate and into the entrance of the city. Very uh, characteristic of Babylon. The second beast is a, is a, is a bear that we're told is raised up on one side. In other words, there's one part of that bear that dominates the other part. And that's exactly what happened with the Medes and Persians. They became an alliance, but the Persians dominated the Medes. And this bear's got three ribs in his mouth. Just like the Medes and Persians had three major conquests, the Lydian kingdom in Asia Minor, the Babylonians, and the Egyptians. And then came the third symbolic beast, a four-winged leopard. It had four wings and four heads, just like Alexander's empire was divided into four a few years after his death. And then the fourth beast that we know is the Romans. And like anything that ever been before, it's described here in Daniel 7 as dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong implying that it's stronger and more fierce than the other empires before it. Even its teeth are made of iron. And then we see this beast has ten horns, just like the ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. This is Rome's ultimate form, still yet in the future, a confederation of ten states. We know that from verse 24 that says this, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. And another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. So this ten-nation confederacy that's, that's going to be yet sometime in the future gets reduced to seven nations by what's described as a little horn. And we're told in verse 8 that this little horn has eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So he's very arrogant in what he's doing. And what's happening here is we're being introduced to this person we know as the Antichrist, this ruthless world dictator that the New Testament describes for us in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. It says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Talking about the Jesus' return to the earth. The it there, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And then here in Daniel 7 again, verse 25, it says, He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So here's this little horn. He's going to claim to be God while at the same time blaspheming the real God. He's also going to use systematic pressure against those who hold the biblical convictions. He's going to wear them down, as it says. His goal is to break the spirit of anyone who opposes him. Revelation 13, 16 shows us that he's going to use economic pressure as well. When it says he causes the great and the small, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. 
And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. So he's going to impose his economic control. He's going to impose a new legal system. He's going to try to make alteration in times. Chapter 7 tells us he's going to evidently try to change the calendar, which is what happened with the, the, um, at the French Revolution, right? They decided they wanted to do away with the AD stuff, so they switched and said, okay, 1792, the beginning of our revolution, it's going to be year one, you know? And so for the next 12 years, that was the legal calendar for France. He's going to try to do something like that. He wants it to be all about him. He's going to make the calendar his own. This guy's going to do this and have this freedom to just go about doing his stuff for what we're told here is a time, times, and half a time. The word time there stood for a year. So at times, one year, times, two years, and half a time. So we're talking about three and a half years. The first half of what we know is the tribulation. We'll be talking more about the tribulation in the weeks ahead. But the question was, and still is, when is this going to happen? How is this all going to work? To figure that out, we go to Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel's now living under Persian rule. They've gained control over the Babylonians. And Daniel's reading, he tells us, from the book of Jeremiah, which mentions the length of the captivity as 70 years. And he's explaining that to us, how he's reading Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So here's Daniel. He's reading Jeremiah, and he realized, okay, 70 years. 70 years, this captivity that we're in is going to be done. And he begins to pray, and he's wondering, when did those 70 years begin? You know, how soon could they end? He knows it's close, but it's just where is it? And he, is, okay, did they start with the fall of Jerusalem in 587? Did, they, did it start with the destruction of the temple in 586? Did it maybe start with when he was taken into captivity in 604 B.C.? In any case, he knows it's getting close, and he's, and he's praying, and he began to pray also, and he's excited because he knows the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 44, 28, and he's blown away by it. Isaiah 44, 28 says this, God is speaking, and he says, and it, it is I, it is I, I'm going to have to get some drink here. It is I who says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. Now the temple, your foundation will be laid. So why is he blown away by that? Well, because Isaiah gives this prophecy about 150 years before Cyrus is even born. It is I who says of Cyrus. He, God's saying, hey, I'm going to use Cyrus. And here's, Isaiah, here's, here's Daniel now. As he looks around, he sees Cyrus. Cyrus, this young Persian king, invading and defeating the Babylonians. He's seeing that prophecy come to life. 
He's pumped up. He's praying. He's encouraged. He's challenged by it all. And, and, and then we read in verse 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting any supplication before the Lord, my supplications before the Lord, my God, in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. This, this is incredible. Daniel's praying. Gabriel, the angel, this messenger from God, appears to him. And I love what happens here. Let's just take a second away here to talk about this. He says, at the beginning of your supplication, the command was issued. Daniel's been praying a long prayer. If you look at chapter 9, it's pretty, pretty long, and he's, it's, it's a long prayer. And the angel says to him, at the beginning, the command was issued. Daniel's been praying. What he didn't know was that as soon as he started to pray, God gave the command in response. Something similar happened again in chapter 10, where, again, he's had another vision. He started praying, and then, again, the messenger is sent to him, and he tells him, from the first day that you set your heart on understanding and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. I love that. Twice, he had Daniel, he's praying, like, he's pouring out his heart to God, and, and the angel keeps coming to him and saying, hey, Daniel, what you didn't know is, as soon as you open your mouth... God answered. It says something to me about prayer. It's, it's exciting to me just to think and what confidence we can have in our prayer because God's so good. He's so gracious. You know, and we don't have to go to him and try to convince him of something. We don't have to go and try to reason with him. We don't have to try to, we, we can't pressure him into anything. No, we pray, we open our mouth, and God hears, and he acts, and he moves, and he, and he does what is good for us. He's immediately at work for our good. So Gabriel's telling Daniel, God's going to answer your prayer, but he's going to go way beyond what you're asking for. Daniel, you want to know when this 70 years is up, this captivity is done? You want to know when there's going to be freedom? Hey, Daniel, God's going to tell you when there's going to be real freedom. And so he goes into this explanation, verse 24. Seventy weeks have been discussed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. 
And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Catch all that? <laughs> Those are actually some amazing, amazing verses. This is why Isaac Newton, the great scientist, he came to these verses, he looked, he studied them, he was poured into them, and he's like, this is the foundation stone of Christianity. Because it clearly shows that Jesus is the Messiah. It also explains why some Jewish rabbis put a curse on those who read this passage. Because they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, and they don't want others believing it. But th this passage clearly points to him. So amazingly, that when we come to it today, we know the people of Jesus' day could have figured it out. Just studying the scriptures. It's clear. It should have been clear to them, and it should be clear to us as we look at what God's word says here. Daniel is told here, the answer to your question is 70 weeks. In the Hebrew, it's literally 77s. And these weeks, they're not weeks of seven days like we think of, but they're weeks of seven years. So the 70 weeks he's talking about is 490 years. 490 years until what happens? And he lists these things, these great things, to finish the transgression, when you're no longer being in rebellion, to make an end of sin, to make atonement, Atonement is simply covering for iniquity, for sin. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision. All messianic visions will be fulfilled. To anoint the holy place. This is all great stuff. But as, as, as it's again going through Daniel's mind is, okay, how is this all going to happen? Where is it going to begin? Look at what we're told, verse 25. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah. Well, we know that decree to rebuild Jerusalem was, was made in 445 B.C. We know that because Nehemiah 2 tells us that. Nehemiah 2, verse 1, Nehemiah is speaking. Remember, he's a cupbearer for the king at this point. And he's speaking, and he says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, 445 B.C., when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This could be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. I bet Nehemiah was afraid. To go before the king sad meant you could be executed for that because you're bringing him down. You're not supposed to bring the king down. So... Daniel is very much, and Artaxerxes, he's a guy who can sort of lose it at times. He's a guy who's a little bit crazy. You know, one time he's having a bridge built over a river, and the river flooded. Must have lived in northwest Ohio. <laughs> the river flooded, it took the bridge out. He's, he's, he's upset by that, so he gave an order. He made an order for the river to be flogged. Nuts, right? It's crazy. One time he had a, a dad come to him and ask, hey, can, I, can you get my son out of the military? Yeah, I can do that. He had the son take it out and cut in half. Son's out of the military. 
crazy guy. Now here's Nehemiah doing what could cost him his life, and he says, I was very much afraid, but this all happened. This crazy guy is actually the one who then gives permission for Nehemiah to go back and the beginning of the rebuilding of Jerusalem to happen, to get the walls going up. You know how long it took? Seven weeks. 49 years. Seven and seven, 49. So he makes the command. He gives the command for the city to begin rebuilding in 445 B.C. Minus the 49 years. We're now at 396 B.C. Hang with me on this, okay? The walls are finished around Jerusalem in 396. And then it's 62 weeks. We're told here in Daniel 9, it's 62 weeks until the Messiah is going to be cut off. So 396 minus the 62 weeks, which is 434 years, puts us at 38 A.D. 38 A.D., but when you consider that Jewish years are 360 days and not 365 like ours, and then you include leap years, scholars like Sir Robert Anderson, an English scholar who wrote the book The Coming Prince, and Harold Holner, who wrote the book The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, their calculations, when they put all that together, when they took all that into consideration, say that this prophecy was fulfilled in the early 30s A.D. when the Messiah will be cut off. And when was Jesus crucified? Early 30s A.D. So, so cool. Isn't that cool? It's clear. It's amazing. Daniel is given this prophecy over 500 years before Jesus is born. Which is why a guy like Alexander Blotnikov, who was a member of the Communist, Social Part, Communist Party in, in the Soviet Union, as he applied to go into the University of Moscow, he was rejected and he, and he realized his rejection came because he was a Jew. And so he became disillusioned with the Communist Party and decided to look into his Jewish heritage. He'd never done that before. As he's looking into his Jewish heritage, somebody says to him, you ought to go look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And he came to Daniel 9, this paragraph that we're looking at, and he realized immediately that Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy. That meant he was the Messiah. And and, and Alexander gave his life to Jesus there, and his entire life was changed. He found new meaning in life, along with hope for the future. This passage clearly speaks to us that Jesus is the Messiah. So, So now, 49 years, seven years, 62 more weeks, excuse me, seven weeks, 62 more weeks. We're at week 69 And up until then, the clock had been ticking. Then those nails are driven into Jesus' hands and feet. And the clock stops. 
69 weeks when Jesus is crucified. Clock's frozen, but we're not done yet. We're told the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And what happened in Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD? It was wiped wiped out. It's described here as being a flood. How much of Israel was deported by the Romans? Virtually everything. And, 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 and it was the Romans. Notice it says here, the people of the prince. It wasn't the Antichrist who did this. It was the people of the prince who was to come. And why did all this happen? 69 weeks, time, as it's described here, has stopped. There's this break in time and why. It happened because of, for us. What's called in Scripture the time of the Gentiles. Sometimes we call it the church age. Think about Romans 11, verse 25. It says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. So here's Paul writing. He said, hey, and if you know the point of Romans 11, he's talking about when the Jewish people rejected Jesus as a Messiah, they were temporarily cut off from the blessings of a relationship with God. The gospel is going to the Gentiles. It doesn't keep individual Jews from, from being saved, but it prevents the nation as a whole from accepting Jesus as Messiah until the plans are finished, when the time is right. God will restore that nation. They will come to faith in him once again, ending the times of the Gentiles. But this is great news for us, right? The, the offer of salvation extended to us during this time. God's graciousness to us. He, we didn't earned that we didn't deserve that but God graciously stops the clock gives time for us to to come to him but what about the promises to the Jewish people well remember we're missing the 70th week right we're at 69 we're supposed to talk about 70 that brings us to what's called the tribulation Daniel 9 again verse 27 the last verse we read says and he that's talking about that little horn, the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant, a peace treaty, with the many, that's Israel, for how long? One week. There it is. There's the 70th week. But in the middle of that week, he, he's going to break that treaty. He's going to put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So he's going to make this, this, this treaty with Israel for a week, for seven years, this seven-year period, that final week that we're going to be talking about in the weeks coming. And we'll also be talking about the millennial kingdom, that literal reign of Christ here on earth, which follows the tribulation. And at the end of the millennial kingdom, after a final attempt by those who don't know God as they try to rebel, which is obviously a losing situation for them, and the struggles against God are finally, ultimately put to an end. So 70 weeks. 
completed. Here's what we have to deal with today. Well, I want you to think about for just a moment. Think back over what we've seen in these first two weeks. Was the Bible accurate when it told about Babylon's fall to Persia? Yeah. Was it true when it told about Persia's dominance over the Medes? Was the Bible true when it told about Israel's return to the land in 445 B.C.? Was it correct in speaking about the rise of Greece? Was it true about Alexander and about how he would be broken off in his youth? Was it true when it told about how his kingdom would be divided into four? Was the Bible true when it told us about the coming of an iron legion? Was it true when it told us about the coming of Jesus and about when he would be cut off? Was it true then? Was the Bible true about Israel's destruction? Was it true when it told about the Romans doing the destruction even before they ever existed? Were the scriptures true that Israel would return and be under duress? So you think it's going to be true when it tells us about the 70th week? I think so. I mean, what are the odds? It's, it's, it's unimaginable that all those, that the Bible could give us all of those prophecies and they'd be right. I mean, just one of those would have been incredible. Unbelievable. Unimaginable that it could be accurate in all of these ways. The 70th week, we get to talk about that in the weeks ahead, and we get to think about what God has for us, and yeah, it's going to be good information. But I also think, is there a chance that the Bible is true when it says there's no other way for men to be reconciled to God except through Jesus? I mean, if you're not a believer, just think about what we just talked about. If you're not a believer, why would you not put your faith in Jesus as a Savior? The final outcome of human history will be when man is returned to the rule of the Son of Man. Jesus. Which is good news. It's great news for us that know him. But it's awesome. Graphic news as well. That's why Daniel was so shocked by it all. I mean, if you read through these chapters where he's having these visions, he, he talks about how tired he is, how he's worn down, how sick he he's sickened by this. Because there's a world out there that needs to know the news. Good news for us, we know him, the best is yet to come, but it's sobering news for a world that needs to know him. Prophecy drives us because time is limited. There's a world that needs to know the Savior. 
and that needs to hear about him and see him in our lives. We don't know how much time we've got left. It's now. Prophecy encourages us because our God is in control and there's no need to fear. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, don't wait. Today's the day. Give your life to him. Ask him to forgive you. He'll enter your life. He'll give you new life, the promise of eternal life. He'll walk with you through this life. Forgive your sin. Wipe it. Make it clean. Believer today, God wants us to move. Because our time is short. It's in his hands. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness, your love. Thank you for extending salvation to us. Thank you for that amazing offer. God, we thank you that we know you're in control of all things and all of this life and all that's to head, uh, ahead. God, it's all in your hands. We trust you with it. We know you're good and you're great. God, for those who may not be, may be here and not know you, I pray, God, that they would come to that point of faith today. And for believers, so God, that we'd walk out of here determined to live for you and encouraged that we know the one who has all this in his hands. We love you today. Thank you for loving us. We pray in Jesus' name.